Well, good morning. Good morning. You, you got to admit, that was deep, wasn't it? That, uh, I, I, all right, I'll be your fall guy on this, because some of you may be here, and you might be thinking, okay, well, that was really inappropriate, you know, kind of silly, silly song like that. Well, I'm the one that decided we were going to do that. And, and honestly, the reason why is that in this series of messages, and we're ready for message number five of a six, this six-part series entitled Better Relationships, we've, we've been dealing with some pretty heavy topics, you know, in this series. You know, a few weeks ago, I talked about broken relationships and about some of the steps in, in promoting healing and knowing full well that if you're in the middle of a broken relationship, I mean, that, that's some significant stuff. You know, I, I had one fella, you know, call me uh, later that week and just to give me a heads up, you know, uh, in, their, in his 70s, he called me later that week and he said, I just want you to know people are listening. And he said, I called and I talked to my brother and I have not talked to my brother in many years, but I'm doing it because this is the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, which was just Man, total thumbs up, but also knowing how difficult it was to initiate contact after whatever kind of grief that existed in that relationship. I, as I'm counting, I'm thinking, um, you know, we've only had four messages, and I think three of these messages, at one level or another, we've been talking about the subject of forgiveness. And forgiveness is absolutely essential in any kind of healthy relationship, but it's not easy. In fact, it can be extremely difficult, but yet we've talked about that on multiple Sundays. And then last Sunday, the topic, if you were here, uh, was toxic relationships. And Kurt shared that message. I felt like he did a great job in handling a difficult topic, but you talk about heavy subjects. Um, yeah, we've covered several of them. And so I, I figured that, you know, we need a little bit of break. We need a little opportunity to smile. And so I thought that video will help create that opportunity. And besides, they did accomplish something in the video. They gave you a whole list of things that you should not do, don't do. And then they told several things. So since they've covered the don't do's, I'm going to spend my time with the do do's. Yeah. Yeah, I said it. I said it. Today we're talking about... All the doo-doos that uh, we should be engaged in. The other day, <clears throat> the other day, Colette uh, turned to me. Actually, it was just a few short weeks ago. She turned to me and she said, happy anniversary. And it kind of threw me off balance because I was just like, okay. I distinctly remember we got married when there was snow on the ground. It was December. And so she was saying, happy anniversary. So my mind was scrambling for a moment, what is the date today? And then it occurred to me, uh, because the day that she said happy anniversary was September 29th. And it didn't take long, but the memory flooded back into my mind. It was September 29, 1977, that Colette and I we're on Highway 24 in my 69 GTO, and uh, we were just east of Silver Lake, and 
talking about who knows what. But my class ring was hanging from my rearview mirror. And she reached up and she was looking at my class ring. And it was at that moment I was inspired to say these words. Do you want to trade rings? And without much hesitation, I mean 40 minutes. No, not really. Without much hesitation, she responded by saying yes. And the next thing that I know is her dinky little class ring is hanging from my rearview mirror and she's got this oversized ring, you know, on her hand. And that was the beginning of when Colette and I started going together. Uh, I'm sure that's not terminology that's used today, but those of you from back in that era, you know full well. Uh, at the end of this year, in December, um, Colette and I will be celebrating our 42nd uh, wedding anniversary. 42 years. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty crazy when you think about it. Ron, I mean, you could practically be my son. You know, I mean, I've been married so long. Well, maybe not Ron, but James could be my son. So uh, uh, 42 years, that's a long time. So anyway, just so you know, um, I've put in my time, and I'm at least somewhat qualified to talk about our subject today because I've been married for over four decades. Three months ago, we um, were trying to figure out what all was going to be included in this series better relationships, and it didn't take very long uh, of brainstorming to realize we really need to talk about a couple of things like parenting and marriage, somewhere they need to fit into this series. And so the decision was made that that's how we're going to be ending the series. Today I'm talking about marriage, and next Sunday Kurt is going to be talking about parenting. Of all the relationships that we as people find ourselves to be a part of. Marriage has got to be what I would consider the most unique and the most challenging of relationships. On the one hand, it can be the most enjoyable and fulfilling of all relationships, but on the other hand, it can be the most painful and draining of all relationships that we experience. It's complicated, right? Someone said, and this someone isn't a reference to myself, this is someone else. Someone else said, in the first year of marriage, the man speaks and the wife listens. <laughs> okay, first year of marriage, the man speaks, the wife listens. Second year of marriage, the woman speaks, the husband listens. The third year of marriage, the man and the woman speak and the neighbors listen. Yeah. Married life is not always a walk in the park. And I think, uh, if we're going to be honest, there's a number of us in here that would acknowledge that, would agree with that statement. It's not always a walk in the park. You know what the average length of time is for a marriage in the United States? This is based on uh, fairly recent statistics. The study might have been four years ago. But like I said, fairly recent statistics. The average length of a marriage in the United States currently is 8.2 years. That's the average. Now, you got some people, like some of you that are gathered here and myself, that have been married nearly 42 years, and for there to be those kind of high numbers out there, you know that there's 
got to be an extra bunch of people that are less than eight years in order to make that statistically what the average is. 8.2 years. I enjoy reading about people that have been married for a really, really long time. I find it insightful, and oftentimes I find it inspiring to be able to hear some of their insights of of what they've got to say. A few years ago, the reigning champs, now, you know, both these folks have passed away now, but a few years ago, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, the reigning champs lived in England. They had been married for 80 years. He was 105 years old, and she was 100 years old. And they were asked a very basic question, a good question, but a very basic question. And the question was, what is the secret to success in marriage? And she answered first, and this is what she said. If you've got a quarrel, you make it up and never be afraid to say, sorry. It is all about hard work. Hard work. We have had our arguments, but we work through them together. We always go to bed as friends and always make up before we go to sleep. Okay, so that was her response. The secret to success in marriage. So they asked that same question to her 105-year-old husband. And his answer was this. Saying, yes, dear. Okay, Tony, I didn't see you make notes on that. So let me repeat that part. (laughs) Saying, yes, dear. God is the one that invented marriage. God is the one, therefore, that holds the patent. Every now and then, it is in our best interest if we dust off the original blueprint for marriage and we refresh our memories a bit as to what it is that God had in mind and what God was doing. So I'm going to show you a passage of Scripture here. I'm going to actually read it because it's too many verses to put on the screen. But this is a part of the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. And in chapter 2, verse 18, it reads like this. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Then just a little bit later in the passage, it goes on to say, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Marriage is not just some kind of a man-made relational contract of sorts. That somewhere along the time in history, a millennium ago or so, that uh, uh, was created. It's not just a legal arrangement sort of a thing. But rather what we're reading in Scripture is that marriage is all about the bonding and the blending of a man and a woman together in marriage. 
I want us to kind of build on that a little bit. I just read back in the original blueprint, back in the very creation account, when God created not just um, man and woman, but uh, he created marriage as well. Well, at a later time, roughly 2,000 years ago, Jesus is on the scene, and he kind of expands a little bit on our understanding of what God's intent was with marriage. He is approached and he's asked questions. Now, there are some ulterior motives as to why he's being asked these questions because as the case was on a number of occasions, uh, people were, some of the religious leaders were trying to trap him in his words and to discredit him on that basis. Uh, but here's what happened. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, it says, some Pharisees came to him to test him. They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And Jesus responds to that, starting in verse 4, by saying, haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? So Jesus appeals to the creation account in the very beginning of Scripture. The Creator made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will be one flesh. So there he quotes verse 24 of Genesis chapter 2. And then Jesus goes on and says, So they are no longer two, but one. All right, so now we're not even done with verse 6. So let's see what he says in the second half of verse 6. Therefore, okay, on that basis, therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now, the people that are asking the question, they, kinda, they got a little bit of a problem with that. And so you're going to see that reflected in verse 7. And then Jesus will respond in verse 8. And here's what those verses record. They said, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. Okay, now here's Jesus' response to them. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. And so they're, they're saying, now, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Moses commanded it. And yeah, you can look in the Old Testament and you'll, sign, you'll find a passage of Scripture where, where Moses talks about this certificate of divorce thing. But they're saying, yeah, but Moses commanded it. And Jesus is like, Moses permitted it. And then he explains, the reason it's permitted is because of the whole sin factor. The hardness of heart. But see, this wasn't God's original design. This wasn't God's original plan that divorce be a part of the equation. His original design is that it would last for a lifetime. Things had gotten out of hand even in the first century. And you may think, well, that's 2,000 years ago. They were still pretty conservative back in those days. But in the 20th century, in the 21st century, things are getting out of hand. Well, they were getting out of hand 2,000 years ago during the time that Jesus walked the face of the earth. They had taken this whole certificate of divorce thing, they had taken it to an extreme. And so some of the, the ways that qualified for uh, giving a certificate of divorce to your spouse 
is that if you burnt the food. I mean, that's specifically laid out in breaking it down. The teachers of the law, they were great at taking some of these commands that are found in the Old Testament and elaborating on them and basically saying, okay, now that includes this and this and this and a, a, a slew of additional commands on top of it. Yeah, they, they were great at doing that. And one of the, the, the ways that they had elaborated on this whole certificate of divorce thing was by saying, basically... Um, if your spouse burnt the toast, you know, in your breakfast, you had the grounds upon which to give a certificate of divorce. It's not just that. If your spouse went out, if she went out and she let her hair down out in public, you had the grounds upon which to file for a divorce. If, you, if your spouse was critical of, of uh, the in-laws, your parents, if they made some derogatory remark about your parents, you have the grounds upon which to give a certificate of divorce. If your spouse went out, and this one specifically applied to the women, if your, if your wife went out and was found, either by you or by some reliable witnesses, was found to be speaking to another man, you have the grounds upon which to divorce her. I mean, this is the, the way things had gotten uh, there in the first century. Jesus was making it clear that divorce wasn't part of God's original plan for our marriages. And so the first thing that I want to get established today as we talk about marriage is that marriage involves commitment. You're not going to find the word commitment in Matthew 19. You're not going to find the word commitment back in Genesis chapter 2. But that is clearly part of what is being talked about here. Is that commitment is at the very core, the very center of a marriage. I mean, you'll find other passages of Scripture where God weighs in and says things like in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, he says, I hate divorce. You don't need a special interpreter to try to break that down for you as to what the point is, what the message is there. Well, the message is pretty self-evident there. Commitment is to be the foundation of the union between a husband and a wife. It is not feelings. That is not the foundation, the way you feel toward one another. It is not your children. Your children are not the foundation of the marriage, the marriage union. You think back to the vows that were shared, and, and there might have been a, a slight tweaking of some of the words here or there in the vows that you know, were exchanged for those of you that are married. But you know, our vows said stuff like, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health. You know, I give you my promise, for rich or for poor. All that kind of stuff you know, was thrown in there. All of that is representative of a commitment. It's going to be nearly impossible to build a great marriage if divorce is an option that you keep tucked away in your back pocket, that you always know that, well, I always have this to fall back on. It's really going to be hard to build a great marriage if that is part of what is in your mind. When you make a commitment and hold to it, it means that, you don't even use the threat of divorce when you get ticked off. When you get all hot under the collar and you get into a knockdown, drag out fight, 
Um, you don't even use the word. You don't use the D word in that, in that argument. That's off limits. You know, that's hitting below the belt. You know, that sort of thing. No matter how mad, no matter how angry you might be, you don't go throwing around the word divorce in an argument. Your marriage will only become what you and your spouse are committed to making it. It's a commitment. Feelings, they come and go. Some days the feelings are up here, right? Kind of cloud nine sort of thing. Other times the feelings are down here. Feelings are somewhat erratic. At times they're all over the place. But a commitment is steady. It can stand the test of time. Feelings were almost always dependent upon and reflect circumstances. Commitments transcend circumstances. That's why it represents the foundation of the union. At the very core of marriage, there needs to be a commitment. Feelings are nice, but they make a horrible foundation. Sometimes in premarital counseling, the analogy that I'll use is, is I'll encourage the, uh, the couple to consider a wedding cake. Think about a wedding cake. And the foundation of that cake is the cake. Now, if you remove all the frosting from the cake, okay, the cake, you know, may or may not taste okay. It's the frosting that really can make a big difference in a cake, Right? But the frosting isn't the foundation of the cake. It's the cake. In a similar fashion, in a marriage, it is the commitment. That is the foundation of the relationship. To have those feelings there, that's very good. That's helpful. That's what keeps it interesting and all of this. But your feelings don't represent the foundation. All right, so that's where it starts. Marriage involves commitment. Secondly... Marriage involves compromise. I'm going to show you a verse that uh, um, is a verse that I think historically has been abused. You know, some, some of the old timers in the room uh, probably, you know, were around to hear um, preachers, people in positions like where I'm at right now, um, taking this verse that I'm going to show you in a moment and really taking it and singling it out of its context and making it say a whole slew of things, building a whole sermon just on the verse, almost to the disregard of the verses that are surrounding it. And I believe that they have done a disservice to this whole subject. What is the verse that I'm talking about? It's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, some of the older translations may say, wives, be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. Some of the oldest translations say, wives, obey your husbands as to the Lord. And, uh, and I remember back years ago when I was teaching through the book of Ephesians um, that I did a bunch of study on some of these verses, and I ran into a lot of material that that's what they did. Man, they took it and they really ran with verse 22, some of the sources 
that I was studying and, and, and built entire messages and, and, you know, elaborate commentary of paragraph after paragraph just talking about this verse. And it almost to the point that it made it sound like, wives, you are subservient to your husbands. I mean, that was kind of the message that was com coming through. And, and that's the way wives would feel, like, you know, being browbeat, you know, by, by this particular verse in the Bible. You can't argue or resist because it is God's word. Well, just to set the record straight, I think that was an injustice to this passage. It is you know, toward the beginning of a passage of Scripture that goes all the way through verse 33 of Ephesians 5. And then even when you jump into chapter 6, you see that what Paul is doing is he's talking about relationships, you know, in the home. And he talks some about husbands and their role. He talks about wives and their role. And when you get into the early verses of chapter 6, he's talking about children and the way children respond to their parents. And so, so he's talking about these different roles in the family. But here's where the problem enters into this, is that the majority, if not every Bible that is represented in this room, you have a heading title in your text. And that heading title is found right above verse 22. And it'll say something like wives and husbands. Or it'll say something about marriage or something to that effect. And it's right above verse 22, and it encompasses everything that's left in that chapter down to verse 33. Now, just for the record, those little heading titles, that's not inspired of God. That's something that the publishers added at a later point in time, just like chapter divisions and verse divisions. When, when the Bible was written originally, it wasn't written with verse and chapter divisions. It wasn't written with these little titles above every so often every two or three paragraphs that was added later and i am of the feeling the conviction that they misplaced this one i believe it should have been just slightly earlier before verse 21 i think verse 21 fits in to this passage most bibles just kind of leave verse 21 as a paragraph by itself you know, because I think they kind of didn't know where exactly it fit in, but they kind of group it with the previous verses. Let's look at verse 21. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wow, all of a sudden that kind of changes the complexion entirely of, of this next verse. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Yeah, it says, submit to one another. So whatever the wives submit to the husbands, that same terminology is being used here of how we need to be submitting to one another. We need to be yielding to one another. In a good marriage, there needs to be a lot of compromising that is going on. And I think that's what this is talking about. From a spiritual perspective, we usually think of compromise as a negative word. Compromise, it involves our values, it involves our morals, our convictions, our, our principles. And if, if you compromise those sort of things, then that's, you're building a case for, about lukewarmness and half-heartedness. You know, and that, that's negative. Anyway, you stack that up. But when you're talking about the marriage, 
the majority of decisions don't involve issues that are ethical or moral. I mean, potentially some can, but the majority of them don't. They're not about moral matters of wrongful or right behavior. Most of the decisions that are made in a marriage are morally neutral, just a matter of personal preference. Some of you may be making a decision when you leave from here. Uh, perhaps you consider it early enough that you'll go out and eat brunch. Some of you maybe consider it late enough that you'll go out and eat lunch. And so you, you're faced with a decision. Where are we going to go eat at? Okay? And both of you are going to play into that. And you may disagree on that. Is that a morally right or wrong decision that's being made? Not hardly. Or perhaps you in the near future are going to be considering buying a new vehicle. And uh, you got a pretty good idea of something that got good reviews on it. It's a reliable vehicle. But now it comes down to making a decision of the color of that car. He says this. She says that. Is that a moral issue? You might try to make it into one, but it's not. It's not a moral issue. It's just a matter of opinion. And there's a whole slew of examples that could be given in, in this regard. That the majority of decisions that are, that are being made in a marriage are morally neutral. So that's why the Bible, I believe, builds a case that there needs to be mutual compromise that's taken place. Now, that doesn't compromise, you know, the, the different roles that are happening in the marriage and, and the role of the husband, the role of the wife, the role of the kids that are being spelled out in those following verses. But, but there's, there's some give and take. There's compromise. Here, here's a verse, I think, that does a good job touching on the principle, although the context isn't specifically talking about marriage, but I do think that it has relevance and application to marriage. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4 says, everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. That means you're not just thinking about what your opinion is 100% of the time. But you're thinking about what the other person's opinion is, what they need, what they want. Maybe they don't need it, but this is what they want. And you're giving that some thought, you know, as you process whatever it is that you're going through. You know, this whole thing about saying that, well, marriages are a 50-50 proposition. I don't know. I don't like that kind of terminology because that kind of carries the idea that somebody's got to be keeping track. If it's going to be 50-50. And that, you know, goes against the grain of what, you know, the, the marriage is supposed to be all about. We shouldn't be keeping score, keeping track of things. In my opinion, it is my opinion that many marriages become a casualty due to inflexibility. Now, I know it's not the only thing that does a lot of damage in destroying and perhaps even ending marriages, but I think it's a big player. I know there's things like infidelity, alcohol, um, abuse in its various forms, 
I know there's a number of other things that play into um, the kind of damage that can happen in a marriage, in a union of two lives. But if someone has the attitude, and this is the way they seem to be approaching things from sun up to sundown, it's my way or the highway. And that's the way they approach it. Just pretty much every situation. Well, that person shouldn't be surprised if one day they find themselves all alone. Because, uh, boy, that, that wears out. That wears people out when they have that kind of an attitude. Besides, when you're trying to understand what is at the very core of love, and 1 Corinthians 13 is a passage that is used in a lot of different weddings, um, Part of the way love is defined for us in that passage in the New Living Translation is that love does not demand its own way. I mean, it goes totally counter, you know, to this whole idea of inflexibility. Okay, so we have talked about commitment. We have talked about compromise and how this needs to be a part of marriage. Well, there's another a thought I want to give this morning, and that is that marriage involves consideration. Now, there's actually a fourth C word that could be added that maybe in a different uh, uh, situation I would be adding it to our list, but I'm not going to do it today because uh, just a few weeks ago it was the first message in this whole series, and that is communication. Marriage involves communication. And so if you missed the very first message of the series, it was entitled, Watch Your Mouth. And it was all about what the Bible says about the words that we choose to use in any and all relationships. And that would include marriage. Um, there would be a lot of relevance there. I would encourage you, if you did not hear that, or if you need a refresher, uh, go online and re-listen to that message. Because marriage involves communication. And that plays a critical role. But the way I want to end the message today is with this, that marriage involves consideration. There's one particular verse that comes to my mind, and for some of you, you're already ahead of me and you're thinking of this verse. It's found in the writings of Peter. Peter said this in 1 Peter chapter 3. He said, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect. Consideration, it involves paying attention to the other person and what's going on in their life and what they're thinking and what they're feeling and what they're needing at any given point in time. Consideration is, is a matter of respect. Consideration is showing courtesy to the other person. It can take a variety of forms, you know, and some of them very simple, basic forms at that. Consideration can, can be the very thing that's driving a person to help clean off the table after a meal. That can be the expression of consideration. Consideration can be that of making, a, making the bed in the morning. Even though maybe you're not normally the person that does that, but yet you do that. Um, that can be an expression of consideration. Consideration can, be put, can involve putting a new roll of toilet paper on when the old roll is empty. That can be an expression of consideration. Consideration can be running an errand for the other person. You know, you either come in from mowing the yard, man, all you can think about is taking a shower and just kind of 
laying back and watching the game or something or other along those lines, but you come walking into the house and the first thing you're greeted with, oh no, I don't have any cream of mushroom soup. I need that. Honey, can you go? Consideration is the sort of thing that would cause a person to say, I'll go. I'll go and do that. To put what you consider your own needs or wishes, you know, on the back burner and to do what is thoughtful for the other person. Consideration can be uh, as simple as opening the door for someone or hanging someone's coat up for them. Think about it. It doesn't take or it doesn't involve oftentimes big major things, you know, when you're thinking about consideration, but just a bunch of little things that carry a big and loud message that this person matters to you. Oh, it, this plays a big role in a marriage, even though it may seem like a small thing. Married people are notorious for taking their spouses for granted after a few years of marriage. Oh, not during the first year or two. You're still on the honeymoon then, right? But what about year five? What about year 10 or year 15? You know, it's during times like that that you begin taking one another for granted, or at least that oftentimes is the way that it can play out. And in so doing, if you're taking one another for granted, then you are neglecting some of the little things, the very things that breathe life into the relationship and that were breathing life in the relationship at an earlier time. Don't underestimate the significance of consideration. You know, we talk a lot about service around here at Crossroads. We talk about how important it is that we be engaged and plugged in and serving. And, and you know, sometimes the application of that can be volunteering for this or that or signing up for a ministry team. And, and it's part of your spiritual health and well-being that you be engaged in serving in some capacity. You know, so for good reason, we talk about that. Um, Jesus set an example for that. You know, one of the classic examples was when he was in the upper room in John 13, and he got down on his hands and knees, and he went around the room, and he washed everybody's feet, including someone who said, No, Lord, I'll never let you wash my feet. And then Jesus said something to the effect of, Well, you'll have nothing to do with me. And then he responded by saying, Well, wash my whole body. You know, of course, that was Peter. You know, but Jesus was setting an example there. In fact, after Jesus had washed everybody's feet in that room, he said this. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. Jesus wasn't trying to initiate some kind of a formal ritual that we should be engaged in. But Jesus is talking about something very practical, that we should be putting other people's interests and needs before ourselves, and we should be serving them, reaching out and meeting some of the, the most basic needs, thinking less of ourselves and thinking more of the people that are around us. How many of you remember back when gas stations were referred to as service stations? I mean, yeah. I wouldn't expect everyone to remember that. 
but I mean, that was. More times than not, when someone was going to make some passing reference to a gas station, they would just say service station. That was the primary way that they were referred to. Now, today we don't, by and large, refer to them as service stations. I worked at a gas station a couple years when I was in high school. I did some when I was in college as well. And the way things were approached back in those days, when a car pulled up, the person driving that car did not need to open their door. They did not need to leave their car. Now, they need to row, row the window down a little bit because I would walk around to the window and I would ask them how much gas you need. Sometimes they'd say 5 or $10 or they'd say fill it up. Back in my high school days, sometimes people would say, I'll take $1.50 of gas. Well, that was still a few gallons of gas back then, okay? I mean, it sounds really funny now, but, um, but, uh, but so that's what I'd do. I'd go over to the gas pump. I'd take the nozzle. I would, I would start putting gas in the car, and especially if they said fill it up, you know, I'd just put it in there, and then I'd walk over and uh, even if it was a smaller amount I'd finish that up and I'd still walk over and I'd get that spongy thing on a stick and and dip it in the water and I would clean off their windshield I didn't ask them about that I just did that I would ask them do you want me to check your oil that was a standard question whether someone was getting a dollar fifty of gas or they were saying fill it up I'd say do you want me to check your oil more times than not people would say yes so some of those old cars, I could pop the hood by myself. Other times I had to have them, you know, pull the lever and help pop the hood. And I'd check their oil. Once in a while, the person sitting behind the steering wheel would say, oh, by the way, could you check the pressure in my tires? And I'd say, do you have a particular tire in mind that you're having problems with? Once in a while, they'd say, no, just check all of them. I'd be okay. I'll do that. Because that's what a service station did. And I'd go around and I'd check the tire pressure and if any of them needed a little bit of air, I'd give them a little bit of air. There were even a couple of times I had someone say, oh yeah, and don't forget the spare tire. You know, and so I was in their trunk, you know, giving attention to the spare tire as well. Now, this was considered a service station. Not even considering the garage stalls where we had a tire machine, we could fix flat tires, and we could do, we had a lift, we could do tune ups and oil changes and all that kind of stuff. I mean, just based on what was going on out by the gas pump, it was a service station. Over time, all of those service stations ended up becoming self service stations, right? And so now, you know, for some of you, maybe when you're going home, you're going to swing by a gas station, and you're going to pull up. And if you're just going to sit there behind the wheel, unless you've got a teenager in the car that you're giving instructions to, you're just going to sit there and wait for someone to do all that kind of stuff, you're going to be sitting there a long time. you got to get up, and you got to pump your gas. If you need your windshield clean, you got to cross your fingers and hope there's water in that container because 50% of the time there's not going to be water there to clean. If you're going to check the oil, you need to do that yourself. Tire pressure, you better hope you've got a few quarters because there's this old bent-up, broken-down compressor that you're going to have to put 75 cents in in hopes of getting enough air just to inflate part of one tire. You see, there's nothing about service station it's all self-service now. 
Well, I say that to say that unfortunately, that same trend often plays out in marriages. Where we go from the marriage being one about serving your partner, your mate, to where eventually it gets to the point where it's self-service. You take care of yourself. Something you need, well, you better get up out of that chair and do it. Something you need to eat, you better get up in the kitchen and you ought to take care of that. And it becomes a matter of, of you serving yourself because you're not serving one another anymore. And that is so unfortunate. And this whole aspect of consideration is part of what, what can remedy that and point things in a positive direction. Autopilot. It's not, it's not a good thing to kind of put things in autopilot. You know, here in this last week, I've seen a couple, two or three commercials, GMC pickups, you know, they're, they're talking about some of their new models coming out. You know, it's not just tr cruise control, but, you know, you can actually push a couple buttons and uh, take your hands off the steering wheel and you're going down the highway and you can be clapping, you know, we will rock you or whatever that is they're doing in the commercial and they're not even touching the steering wheel and they come up upon slower traffic and the vehicle changes lanes by itself and the whole bit, you know, and that, that's, we're getting, you know, closer and closer to that whole autopilot sort of thing. Boy, don't do that in your marriage. Don't just kind of put things on autopilot and allow your feelings to dictate your actions and to just do whatever comes natural. That's not a good idea in a marriage because some of your base instincts and all are going to be rising up and influencing things, and it won't be in a good direction. God has invested in your marriage. He's invested in marriage, period. I mean, he's the one that gave away the first bride, remember? Genesis chapter 2. And God has invested in you in a major way. And especially that has been seen through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. And so as we come to our time of communion, I want to encourage you to do two things. One is that here in just a moment, we're going to be having an opportunity to prayerfully eat the bread and drink from the cup and remember the body and the blood of Jesus and the sacrifice that was made on our behalf to make it possible for us to be freed from sin and to have a home in eternity with God. This is going to be a time where we reflect on that, we cherish that, we celebrate that. But I also want to encourage you to use this, if you're married, to use this as a time where you examine your heart and you ask God to help you to see what he sees in regards to your marriage, in regards to the dynamics that are happening in your home between you and your spouse. And is that something that is bringing glory to God? Is that something that is pleasing in his eyes? And allow the Lord to lead you. Allow uh, his spirit to prompt you and to convict you and to move you in a healthy direction so uh, that the relationship you have with your, on your spouse can be on an upswing and can be going in a healthy direction, okay? Do those two things. Um, I'm going to pray now. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to gather together and to do that freely in this country and to worship you, to join our voices together and, and exalt you in song and, and also to open your word
and to know that uh, this is legal. We can do this. Uh, the Bible hasn't been outlawed in this land. And Father, we thank you for the freedom and the availability to do that. Lord, we're also thankful for your word in how it is so relevant in that it speaks directly to our lives. Might we have ears to hear, and might we have a heart that's willing to respond accordingly to the direction that your word is directing us. Thank you, Lord. We celebrate your love and the gift of your son. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you.